0: Phrase in God we trust is the official motto of the United States. Despite everything going on in the world, it still remains largely popular among Americans when they do surveys. However, the question must be asked, do we, do we really trust in God? I mean, is it something that has gone from just a saying or something that's on our money to something that's down into our heart? And if we would say, yes, I do trust in God, what does that look like and why do we need to trust in God? Open your Bible tonight to Isaiah chapter 8, page 522. We're going to answer that question or those questions. Uh, when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on honor the reading of God's Word. Isaiah 8 and 1. The Lord said to me, Take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. And I will take myself to myself faithful witnesses for testimony. Uriah the priest, and Zechariah the son of Jebarakai. And I approached the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. The Lord said to me, Name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry out, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoils of Samaria will be carried away by the king of Assyria. Again the Lord spoke to me, saying, Inasmuch as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and, re- and rejoice." In resin and the son of Remelia. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates River. That is the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over its channels and go over all the banks. Then it will sweep onto Judah and it will overflow and pass through. It will reach as far as the neck and spread its wings. You will fill and spread the and the spread of its wings will fill the expanse of your land, Emmanuel. Be broken. You peoples, and be shattered. And listen, all remote places of the earth. Get ready, and yet be shattered. Get ready, and yet be shattered. Devise a plan, but it will fail. Say the proposal, but it will not stand, for God is with us. For so the Lord spoke to me with mighty power, and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people. You're not to say a conspiracy regarding everything the people call a conspiracy. You're not to fear what they fear, or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of armies whom you are to regard as holy, He shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. Then he will become a sanctuary. And But to both houses of Israel he will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them and they will fall and be broken. They will be snared and caught. Bind up the testimony and seal the law among my disciples. And I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will wait eagerly for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of armies who dwells on Mount Zion. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter. Should a people not consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and the testimony. They don't speak in accordance with this word. It is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land dejected and hungry. It will turn out that when they're hungry, they will become enraged and curse their king and their God as they face us upward. They will look to the earth. And behold, distress, darkness, and gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. title of the message tonight is, In God We Trust. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you tonight. We praise you for your grace and your goodness. Thank you for the opportunity we have to gather uh, to sing your praise, to study your word, to take time tonight, lift up prayer needs to you. Father, we're grateful for the freedoms we have in our country, Lord, to gather without fear. Uh, we're grateful, Lord, for the abundance of... Of your word that we have in our language, Father, we have it in a multitude of translations. We have ease of access to it, Uh, Lord. What we have is just almost what you might call an embarrassment of riches. Help us, Father, to appreciate the great blessings we have in your word, and let us be a people of the book as we ought to be. Let's devote ourselves to studying it, to applying it, to living it out, to sharing it with others. Father, fill me tonight with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech, that I would speak your words and your ways for your glory. We. We need you, Father, to use this time tonight to strengthen us and encourage us, challenge us and change us to deepen our our roots in you so that we would trust you. Father, no matter what comes upon the the world around us, that our faith, our hope, and our trust would be firmly ground in you. Uh, Have your way in our hearts. Have your way in our lives. We ask do this for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. So in verse 1, Isaiah is told to write in ordinary letters, meaning the message He is going to give is going to be written in the language everybody can understand. Uh, Verse 3, verse 5, verse 11, we see in verse 1, the Lord has spoken or the Lord has said. So what we have in Isaiah 8 is a message from the Lord given through Isaiah that is meant to be read and understand by all people. Uh, The message is like this in verses 1 through 4. Isaiah is going to have a son with a unique name. This son is a uh, either a fulfillment of the prophecy given, or one of the fulfillments of the prophecy given in seven, chapter 7, verses 14 through 16, or he is a prophetic sign similar to the, the son that's talked about in chapter 7. And this son of Isaiah is before he is old enough to be able to say, Mom or Dad, the wealth of Damascus. Uh and the spoils of Samaria will be carried away. In other words, Samaria and Syria will be conquered by Assyria. This is a a fulfillment of God's prophecy in Isaiah 7:15 and 16. And it is also a part of Assyria's agreement with Judah. Judah had made an agreement to kind of be a vassal state under Assyria. And as a part of the agreement, what Assyria was supposed to do was they were to attack Syria and Samaria, conquer them so that King Ahaz and Judah did not have to be afraid of them any longer. However, as the message from the Lord goes on, we find that Assyria is not going to be the Savior that Judah expects them to be. In verses 5 through 8, they are going to eventually turn on Judah and completely conquer them. Now this, of course, is not a surprise to God who is prophesying about it here, but He also prophesies about it in the chapter before. He knows that King Ahaz is not going to listen to his word. King Ahaz is going to reject what God says, make his own treaty with them despite God telling him otherwise. And so God had told him, when you do, you're going to find that they are going to turn against you. This is a fulfillment of what God has said. And in fact, what we see in this chapter is it's God the one who is doing it. God is going to turn Assyria against Judah and use them to bring judgment upon his people. So we might ask, why would God bring judgment upon his people? Well, the answer is given to us in verse six, right? First, they had rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh. This means they had trusted in Assyria and not God. God told Ahaz clearly, and he offered to give him a sign saying, the plans of Syria and Samaria will not stand. What you need to do is just trust me. Don't come up with your own ideas. Don't do your own things. Listen to what I have to say and trust that I am God and I can do whatever I want to do. Ahaz did not trust God. He rejected God's word and he chose to trust in Assyria rather than God. And he had made an alliance with them. That's what the first part means. Secondly, they had rejoiced in Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Now, the son of Remaliah is Pekah, the king of Samaria. So what it means by the fact they had rejoiced in Rezin and in Pekah is not that they had loved them or found security in them. Rather, they rejoiced in the misery Syria and Samaria were experiencing as a result of Assyria beginning to conquer them. Uh, They were Syria was not nice when it conquered places. Its conquering was pretty severe. And so they were suffering greatly. And so Judah and King Ahaz were rejoicing in their defeat. And they were... Uh, really this rejoicing in their defeat and their misery is contrary to what God said in the book of Proverbs. God said, do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Do not let your heart rejoice when he stumbles. Otherwise, the Lord will see it and be displeased and his anger will turn away from him. That's part of what we see in this. Also, part of their rejoicing in Reza and, and Pekah is due to Ahaz's plan working. Again, God told Ahaz, don't. Don't make this plan. Don't make this treaty. And Ahaz said, I'm really going to kind of do what I want to do. I'm going to do my own thing. So he made the treaty with Assyria and huzzah, it worked. The Assyria was able to conquer them and everything worked out exactly the way he wanted it to work. The wording here seems to carry with it the idea also of Ahaz kind of saying, See, I didn't need God to take care of this. I figured it all out for myself. The human heart is so proud it is always looking for ways to solve their own problems without trusting in the Lord. And since Judah had trusted in Assyria not God, God was going to turn Assyria against Judah and they would conquer them completely. Verses 7 and 8 describe how they would conquer them and it just pictures just almost complete annihilation. They would be absolutely and totally conquered from one end of the land to the other. It wasn't going to be Assyria was going to come in and take one, one city or just a part of the land, they were going to conquer it from north to south, east to west. Every edge of it would be under Assyrian rule. And then, in verse 9 and 10, despite the fact God would use Assyria to conquer Judah and to punish Judah, God was also going to punish Assyria for their wickedness, right? They were not going to get away with their own levels of wickedness. God would bring his own punishment Upon them, despite their best plans, their best proposals, their best ideas, they would be shattered and it would be God who does it. So all of that brings us to verse 11, where God then, after telling Isaiah what is about to happen, brings a personal message to Isaiah. And since everything in 1 through 10 is true, what God is saying to Isaiah is, trust me and remain faithful. Now, the order is important. Judah had not trusted God, therefore they had not been faithful to God. Isaiah, if he wants to remain faithful to God through everything that's coming, then he must trust God. There is no way to be faithful to God without trusting in God. So, God's message to Isaiah is essentially God's message to us. We must trust God to remain faithful to God. Like Isaiah We live in a culture which has chosen not to trust God. And their lack of trust in God is seen in their perpetual unfaithfulness to God. It is seen in their calling evil good and good evil. And if we are going to remain faithful to God in a culture that has turned against the Lord, then in God we trust must be more than a phrase upon our money. It must be the way we live our lives. And this passage shows us three ways we live out our our faith in God when we trust God. Right? So first we trust God we listen to God that was the first place Judah or yeah, Judah and King Ahaz had made the mistake God had given them a message they had rejected that message God is speaking to us in this passage God is speaking to us through his word are we listening are we trusting trusting God and listening to God is more than just hearing the words that are in the hearing the words <coughs> that are being spoken or hearing the words that are in the word it carries with the idea of hearing and heeding. Ahaz heard the message, but it didn't benefit him because he did not do what the message says. This is similar to what we find all throughout the New Testament. Be doers of the Word and not hearers only. Those who build their lives in a way that stand are those who hear the Word and do it. Right. So we might, when we trust in God, we listen to God. And listening to God is heeding His Word, doing what He says. And specifically in this passage... What Isaiah was told was, don't walk in the ways of the people around them, in verse 11. He was to be different than them, to live differently than them. He was to refuse to seek worldly counsel, in verse 19. They sought spiritists and mediums and all manner of things like that. And as disciples of Jesus, we are not to seek worldly counsel. And then a, to recommit ourselves to God's Word, verse 16 and 19. So that's what we talked about the first week. Secondly, when we trust God, we, we focus on God. Right? So much of how we respond to life is determined by what we're focused on. If Isaiah focused on the same things the people focused on, then he would respond the same way the people responded. So he was to focus on God and, and not on anything else. And he was to focus on God's certainties, right? He wasn't to fear all of the, the, the things that could happen and might happen. He was to focus on God's greatness. And then tonight we look at the last one, right, when we trust god we rest in god but a big part of this passage and this message to isaiah is a a message of reassurance it is trust me rest in me uh, rest in who i am rest in what i've said rest in what i have done this passage it, it kind of gives us three ways that we should rest in god first we, we rest in god's protection the culture Isaiah lives in has made a, a really hard turn against God. Again, they call evil good and good evil. They have a decidedly negative view of Isaiah. And as the book goes on, there, this, this view of him is not going to get any better. In fact, it is only going to become more hostile. If Isaiah is going to remain faithful to God in the middle of the culture that is right now, And the culture that is to come in later chapters. Then his trust in God must enable him to trust in God's protection. That God will protect him. God will care for him. God tells him in verse 14 that he will be a sanctuary. This is a picture of God protecting Isaiah from the plans of the people. and The things that they wanted to do. God would protect Isaiah from his enemies. To such an extent that they would stumble As they came against Isaiah. In many ways Isaiah's faithfulness to God amid a hostile culture. Will depend on his ability to rest in God's protection. To trust God will protect him. Because what he's going to do is going to be wildly unpopular. What he's going to do is going to be dangerous. To go out at times and and stand right in the entrance of the temple and say, thus saith the Lord, everything over here is wrong and everything over here is idolatry and God is going to bring judgment, that's not going to win Him friends and influence people in the ways He wants to win friends and influence people. He is going to have to trust that as He does this, out in the open, in front of the people, God Himself will take care of Him. Now like Isaiah, we live in a shifting culture. Our culture has made a hard turn against God just as Isaiah's did. Our culture calls evil good and good evil. They have a decidedly negative view of those who are devoted disciples of Jesus. And this view is not going to get any better. As disciples of Jesus, we are called to faithfulness to Jesus and to the gospel, despite any hostility we may face in the culture. Jesus was explicit about this. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, I don't have to go into a lot of detail about the kind of relationship wolves and sheep have with one another. Suffice to say, it is not a friendly one. Wolves violently attack sheep and eat them. Jesus' point is regardless of how antagonistic a culture becomes to disciples of Jesus, we are still to go out. We are still to be faithful. We are still to do whatever He wants us to do. We are not to let fear of hostility fear of what they may do, fear how they may attack us, keep us from doing the things Jesus wants us to do. Now, Isaiah's trust in God's protection is built upon what we see in verse 13. The Lord of armies, this is who you regard as holy. He shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. Right. If Isaiah essentially if he fears God, Then he doesn't have to worry about fearing humanity. He can just do what God wants him to do. And as disciples of Jesus, we are given similar instructions about fearing God alone and trusting in his protection. And this is why we go out in the midst of wolves, despite the fact we are sheep. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Two sparrows not sold for an Assyrian, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not fear. You're more valuable than a great number of sparrows. And something I like about this is the honesty. Jesus does not deny the reality and the probability of people being able to kill us. Right? That's what he says. Don't be afraid of those who, who can kill the body. But what he does say is to fear God and we need not fear them. Because if we have a right view of God and a right fear of God and a right view of eternity, then we don't have to fear humans here and we have we realize this life is not the end all be all, that this life is not the end of it. Right? Our right view of God, our right view of eternity frees us from fear of death. It frees us from the fear of people killing us because they don't like our message or they don't like the lives we live or they don't like our faithfulness to God. Also, a right view of God reveals God's view of us. Right? We are precious in His sight. Right? The hairs of our head are counted. God cares for His children. Historically, faithfulness to Jesus has been free of persecution and hardship in America and most of the Western world because largely, The culture had a positive, or at the very worst, neutral view. Christianity, disciples of Jesus, and the church. But the culture has shifted. At best, our culture has a neutral view of Jesus, of the church, of disciples of Jesus. But more and more, it is actually a negative view. Now, this is unlikely to change for the better. It is not going to get any easier to live for Jesus Openly and honestly and with devotion in our culture. It is only going to get more and more difficult as time goes on. And if we are going to be faithful to Jesus in a hostile culture, we must trust God enough to rest in His protection. To say, I fear God, I don't fear man, my soul, my life, my eternity is in His hands. So we must rest in God's protection. We must also rest in God's promises. Even though things would soon be bad for Judah, Isaiah says in verse 17 that he will wait on the Lord and he will eagerly wait on the Lord. Isaiah would wait on the Lord because he trusted God to do what he said he would do. Even though God was currently hiding his face from Judah, Isaiah was eagerly waiting on the Lord. Isaiah's anticipation about what God would do and what God was going to do, it flowed from Isaiah's knowledge of what God had promised concerning his people God had not just come upon the scene suddenly and been angry at them God had spoken I mean they have hundreds of years of testimony of who God is what God is like what God has promised he would do and how God has promised he would act and the ways God has promised he would forgive his people Isaiah knows who God is Isaiah knows what God has said and so he is going to rest in God's promises not only is Isaiah going to rest in God's promises with anticipation? Isaiah has basically physical reminders of God's promises. Look at verse 18. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of armies who dwells in Zion. Listen to what one of my commentaries says about this passage. It says, Isaiah's name means the Lord is salvation, reminding the people that their deliverance could only come from the Lord. Isaiah had another son, and his name was Sheer Jeshev. And His name meant a remnant will return, reminding the people that the Lord would lead a remnant of believers out of captivity back to the promised land. Then there was the child named Emmanuel, reminding the people God was always with those who put their trust in Him. And then Isaiah's child, Meher Shalal Hashbaz, means quick to plunder and quick to spoil. Um, This child's name reminded the people they must return to the Lord or else face judgment. Right? So there was... The promises Isaiah knew about, and then there were the promises that God had, basically the signs of God's promises, the physical signs of God's promises that were there that Isaiah was going to cling to. Despite everything Isaiah was seeing, everything that was going on around him, everything he knew was coming in the future, Isaiah trusted God, and so he rested in God's promises. Now, we too have been given many great and precious promises by the Lord. And these promises are true regardless of the circumstances of our lives. And these promises are true regardless of the attitude of the culture around us. Let me just remind us of a few. Right? There is no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. I won't have time to get into these in any detail, but to me that's always a fascinating. I love that. Right, If you have repented of your sins, believed in Jesus Christ and been born again at this moment, right now, you are free, forever free of condemnation. There's not a future version of you that's going to be free of condemnation. Right now, at this moment, you're free from condemnation. We can do all things through Jesus. Now, if there's nothing God wants us to do, no matter how hard it seems, no matter what we look at this thing, I could never do that. The reality is, through Jesus, we absolutely can do anything God would want us to do. God will provide for our needs. We're promised that God gives provision to His people. Uh, Jesus has freed us from slavery to sin But no matter how much we may struggle with sin Or how much it's going on in our lives The reality is as born again disciples of Jesus We have been set free Our our flesh has been crucified with Christ And we are free to live for Jesus Whether we feel this way or not Our prayers are powerful Because God is powerful I, I like that one too Often we want to pray the right way And say just the right words But the reality is Saying just the right words isn't Christian prayer. That's really more like witchcraft. We have to say the right words in the right way with the right inflection and and that has the power. But in Christianity, all the power resides not in our words but in God. So God is powerful. So our prayers are powerful whether we stutter and stammer, whether we say the wrong words, whether we kind of just say God, you know what I mean? I mean, no matter how we pray, if we're trying and we're crying out, our prayers are powerful because our God is powerful. Nothing we do in Jesus' name is ever done in vain. Everything counts. Everything is eternally significant since Jesus has risen from the dead. Everything we do in his name has significance. And this is true whether it seems like it or not. God will save people when we share the Gospel. The Gospel has inherent power to seek in the people's hearts, take time to cultivate, bring forth fruit in God's time. But when we share the Gospel, we don't fail just because someone turns down the opportunity that day to come to Christ. God can do more in us, through us, and for us than we can possibly imagine. Most of us live, I believe, far below what God would have us to live because we think we're too ordinary we think we just can't do the things God would have us to do and yet we're told in Ephesians 3:20 that God can do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or imagine which we hold to greatly when we pray and things like that but the verse goes on to say according to the power that's at work in you Right, So that exceeding abundant power, it's not out there somewhere, it's in us. The Holy Spirit is in us. And so that exceeding abundant power is already at work enabling us to do far more than we could ever ask or imagine. Holy Spirit will produce His fruit in our lives. God will complete the work that He began in us when we were saved. And we are more than conquerors through Christ, despite any trials, tribulations, or suffering. Now these are just a few of the promises we have. These things are true, right? And as a disciple of Jesus, someone who's been born again, these things are all true of you, no matter what the culture says, no matter what's going on in our lives, no matter the circumstances. And we probably, none of those are new. Nobody's reading those for the first time going, I never knew that. But what happens is the critics in the culture, the devil and our doubts will cry out, how can we be sure all of these things are really true? i can be sure God will really do all of these things. Those are amazing things. I would love for all of those things to be true. How can I be certain? Well, like Isaiah, God has given us a physical reminder of the certainty of His promises. Right? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? The word did not spare means God did not refuse or even hesitate to give Jesus His Son for us. So imagine... The time for Jesus to be born was here. And God was weighing what He was going to do. Would He send His Son to die an awful death on the cross for our sins so that we could be redeemed and come to know Him? Or would He leave us in our rightly deserved eternal separation because of our sin? And at this point, God had a choice to make. There were costly choices. He could rightly, justly let us suffer eternal separation because of our sins. Or He could, just because He wanted to and because He loved us, send His Son to die as a sacrifice for our sins. Well, God knew that He wanted to save us from eternal separation. And the only way this could be accomplished was for Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. So the Father did not even hesitate for a second about what to do. He did not spare His own Son, but He gave Him up for us all. Think about how great this is. We rebelled against God. We were justly condemned in the presence, in the sight of God. And yet God took the initiative and God sent his son to come and pay the penalty our sins deserved. This is what it means when it said he did not spare his son, but delivered him over for us all. And as good as that is, the passage gets better. And it goes on, and how will he not also with him freely give us all things? The point. And the last part of verse 32 is if God has given us His Son, won't He give us everything else? But if God has already done the biggest thing that He could possibly do, which is send His Son to come to earth, die on the cross for our sins, then won't He do everything else and more? If God willingly did that which is greatest, won't He also do that which is less? The obvious answer is yes, He will. Jesus, through His death and His resurrection became the yes and the amen to all of god's promises according to second corinthians 1 and 20 right what that means is these things are true in us we don't have to work at them right we don't have to work to be free of condemnation we've repented of our sins we've believed in jesus we've been born again we are free jesus is the yes and the amen that's true all of those things are true for us not some future version of us but right now every one of those things are true Not because we're great, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. So knowing God did not waver at keeping His first promise, the great promise of a Savior, even though it meant He would sacrifice His Son for us all. It it should, it does, it allows us to trust God and rest in His promise regardless of whatever circumstances we may find ourselves in, regardless of what's going on in the culture Around us. And then finally, we rest in God's protection, rest in God's promises, rest in God's justice. The last part of Isaiah's, or God's message to Isaiah in this chapter, is a message of warning and promise. Right? They will pass through the land dejected and hungry. It will turn out that when they are hungry, they will become enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. They will look to the earth, behold distress, darkness, and gloom, and anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. It is a warning. Of God's judgment. It is going to fall on the nation of Judah. If they persist in their rebellion against God, then the day will come when God's judgment will come upon them in this way. This is also a promise because one, God is promising he will do this. And two, it is a fulfillment of something God had always said he would do if people turned from him. Again, the idea of God punishing the people because they have rebelled against him isn't something God just suddenly did in the book of Isaiah. All the way back when God met with the people at Mount Sinai and gave them the covenant and said, here are the things I will do for you. And if you do these things that I'm telling you to do, I will do all of this these good things for you. But, but if you don't do the things I'm telling you to do and you do the other things instead, then here are the bad things I, I am going to bring upon you. And so the people back then, they, they made a covenant. They said, "Okay, we agree to your terms. We will be your people. You will be our God. Your law will be the basis for how we live our lives. And as we live in your law and we do your thing, we expect that you will bring these blessings upon us because you said you would. And we understand if we turn from you and if we do the opposite of what you've said, you will bring these curses upon us because that is what you've said. We agree to these terms, right? So the people all the way back in Exodus, they knew this is what they were agreeing to. This is what has been taught to the people. In the temple all of these years. They are taught the covenant they have with God. It is a covenant where God, they will be God's people. God will be their God. They will do His will. As they do God's will, He will do all of these things for Him. And as they turn away from God, He will do all of these bad things to them. And all the way up, the people agree. Yes, we are in covenant with God. We agree to God's terms. We know God's terms. This isn't a surprise for them. The idea that God would do this isn't shocking to them. This is just God being who He said He was. This is just God doing what He said He would do. Now, I focused on the idea of justice in this, because from Isaiah's perspective, it could seem, right now, like those who are rejecting His messages from God and have turned on Him and will soon begin persecuting Him with greater vigor will just get away with it. Right? They, they will just be able to do what they want to him and turn away from God and there will be no accountability and there will be no consequences. Ahaz has already rejected God's direct command, has done explicitly what God said not to do, and thus far it has worked out swimmingly well for Ahaz. It is God has, or they, Assyria has done exactly what he wanted them to do. So from Isaiah's perspective, it could look like They're just all getting away with it. And so long as the king and the culture are wicked, there won't be any people to hold them accountable for their sins, for their wickedness, and whatever evils they do to Isaiah. God's word to Isaiah here is a reminder. people It is a reminder that while people may escape human justice, they do not escape ultimate justice that while they may seem to get away with it now because the king and those in power are wicked, there is someone who has a greater power than the king and he is the one that is going to hold them all accountable. And this is an important point for us to grasp as well. Every day we see evil and injustice abound in our world. I follow several... Um, Groups that that help the persecuted church and persecuted countries on social media. Every day they share things about Christians who are beaten for their faith, who are martyred for their faith. Churches are burned down. Houses are burned down. Children are kidnapped and sold into slavery. All of this done simply because they are deeply devoted disciples of Jesus. Every day we see powerful and connected people get away with actions regular people would spend years in jail for doing murders go unsolved rapists get off on technicalities on and on it goes watching evils and injustice go unpunished can eat away at our souls if we let it but we aren't the first people to struggle to understand why the wicked seem to prosper and the righteous seem to suffer turn with me to psalm chapter 73 It's page 446 if you have a pew Bible. Psalm 73, verses 1 through 5. God certainly is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Why? I was envious of the arrogant. As I saw the prosperity... Of the wicked, there are no pains in their death, their belly is fat, they are not in trouble like other people, nor are they tormented with the rest of mankind and he, and he goes on for the from the next several verses, talking about he tries hard to live for Jesus or to live for the Lord, and it's difficult. he washes his hands in innocence he's stricken all day long and punished every morning but Not so with the wicked. They are at ease. They have increased in wealth. It it seems from his perspective at times to be a waste of time to try to live for the Lord, to live righteously. The wicked prosper, the righteous suffer. And even when the wicked die, it's a painless, easy death. And they seem to kind of skate by and and go easily where the righteous suffer and then die. So he, he wrestles with this view. And what he sees going on until he gets to verse 17. And in verse 17 he says, Until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. You indeed put them on slippery ground. You drop them into ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away like sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. Lord, when stirred, you will despise their image. So he's really borders on being bitter about the the wicked getting by, the righteous suffering. And what changes his perspective is when he thinks about the end. And what he realizes is, sure, they probably do have all of this prosperity. They do seem to escape human justice. But he realizes there is a God who is over them. There is a God who controls their life. God puts them onto a slippery ruin. On slippery ground, God is the one Who drops them into ruin. God is the one who destroys them in a moment. God is the one who utterly sweeps them away. And then they awake. It's like a dream. You wake up and the Lord is stirred. The psalmist understands that that yes, they may escape human justice in this life. But there is a greater justice they're going to face when this life is over. They have to stand before Almighty God and give an account to Him for their life. He realizes they do not actually escape eternal justice in our world evil and injustice abounds and it will abound so long as the world goes on we do not live in heaven yet this world is not a utopia and it never will be Anything that humans do to create a utopia on earth will fail because humans go in there to that utopia and take their wickedness and their injustice with them. So long as life goes on, evil and injustice will go on. Evil and justice will abound. It will happen in this life. It will, it will exist and at times it will often prevail and at times it will escape. The justice of this life. But this life is not all that there is. There is a day coming. In which ultimate and absolute justice will be served. Those who escape human justice. Or seem to get off easy. While leaving suffering in their wake. They do not escape God's justice. God's justice is more just. And more severe. Than any human justice could ever be. Now. We are not likely We are not going to see human or God's justice meted out in our time the way it happens in eternity. And while that is so, our trust in God allows us to rest assured it will be. It allows us to rest assured that there is a God who is over the world and he is the just judge of all the earth and while we may not understand why he does not intervene and stop the injustice and the wicked now we know that he brings those who do the wickedness and injustice into an account for their sins their crimes their wickedness and their injustice and they will stand before the just judge of all the earth and this judge is not a a human but god There are no legal loopholes that they will be able to take advantage of. There are no contacts they can reach out to. There are no connections they can have. They will be judged strictly, justly, fairly by the pure justice of a holy God. And if we are going to remain faithful to God, we must trust God. God. And when we trust God, we can trust His justice. And, and this is, I think this is true all the time. But this is going to be more true as time goes on. Because the culture is going to turn more and more against Christianity, against the church, against disciples of Jesus. And more and more, what we read about from Operation World that happens in the Sudan. More and more stuff like that is going to happen here. There are already, over the the Roe versus Wade thing, there are already places that are devoted places for disciples of Jesus that have been firebombed. There are already places where services have been disrupted. They've done everything they can to make sure they can't have a worship service that goes on in there. More and more. I've seen more and more things saying. Christians and the, the right, as they define it, should not be allowed to feel safe in our country anymore. Make no mistake, the culture is turning against Christianity, against disciples of Jesus. And it is going to get more and more that way. Now, how far it goes in our lifetimes, I don't know. But we're not going back to leave it to Beaver era where the world sees the church as a good thing and Christians in a positive way. And so as the church begins to suffer here, as Christians begin to suffer here for the sake of Christ, we're going to have to trust that there is a just judge over all the earth, who though they get away with it here, though they prosper here, they do not get away with it in eternity. There is a God who will hold them accountable. We must trust God's justice. And when we trust God, we can trust God and His justice, even though we do not see it. In God we trust. It's our nation's motto. It's on our money. People go to great efforts right now to try to make sure it's publicly displayed in public places. But a bigger question, a more important question, is in our hearts. Does it show in our lives? Does the way we rest in God indeed show that we trust our great God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight.